Thank you, Andrew. Um, a little while ago, Andrew and I went over to Texas together, and that was, um, that was great. So thank you for letting Andrew come out and play. Um, although I have to say, he did much more than just play. It was very good. Uh, you know what they say about um, the teachers, you know, those that can do and those that can't teach. Um, so often I feel that involved in training others, I'm training people much more gifted and experienced than I am. Um, one of the things uh, you will have learned about uh, Andrew, besides all his other gifts, is quite prophetic. Um, and, uh, and that sometimes rubs off on you. So I'm, I'm finding that God's doing some new things for me. And, um, and one of them was happening this morning. I keep getting pictures of fires and bonfires and beacons. And uh, so that was, as we were worshipping, that was coming in my head. And so this is the picture I had of beacon. I, I remember when I was younger, we had a coal fire at home. And towards the end of the evening, when you weren't going to put any more coal on, you would let it settle down. And there'd be that lovely time when every coal is glowing. And it's just lovely and warm and cozy. And uh, uh, the picture I had, was that that's what this feels like. Um, but in this picture was... Um, that this wasn't in a grate, it was like a bonfire outside, and it had got to that stage where it was just glowing. But people with torches, like, you know, like in medieval films, came along and lit the torches and then carried them off. And they carried them off, and I could, we drove this morning through the beautiful countryside in the sunshine, and it was as though I could see different parts of, of the countryside being lit up. Um, uh, in terms of places, I wasn't quite sure. They didn't, it wasn't just fields. We weren't destroying things. But, but it was like there were places where there are other like bonfires that are set, but there's no fire. And that from this place, people would be taking torches and setting them. But as that happened, the, the glowing coals, it, it was like, as though someone had put new fuel on, but what you, it wasn't that they put new fuel on, but the wind came. And the fire began to roar again. And so I, I thought, so in my head, this is what I think. And if you know anything about prophecy, you can have an insight and then there's some, to interpret it is another thing and to apply it is another. But, and you have to weigh prophecy anyway. So this might be totally wrong, but this is what I got. Uh, was there, is a, there will be a season of giving away of people who are being fired up here. Their torches are being lit and taking that and lighting other bonfires that are set, but they're not, there's no flame there. So that was fairly safe, wasn't it? And then um, I'm just having something new, and we had this word about you know, doing something new and fresh, and I was thinking, yes, I hope someone does that. <laughs> um, but in me was having something. So I've got two torches I want to give to two people, uh, and I don't know quite the application about that. But as I looked around, that's what I felt I should do. So you imagine these big torches with the head, and there were two guys, and now you're all getting worried, aren't you? <laughs> and you should be worried, because here's a torch. And here's another torch, and it's over here, and someone else is getting worried. And you've got a torch, sir. And um, there's a scripture that you know, Jesus talks about not hiding your lamp under a bushel. So let's be careful. 
just between me and you, no one else is listening, uh, is that um, I don't know if there's been ever a temptation that you hide your lamp under a bushel. It's much more dangerous when you have a torch. You can't hide that. You'll get burned. Now, you'll need to check that out. And I don't know where you take the torch to, and I don't know if it means relocating. I'm not trying to... And Andrew hasn't given me any agenda at all. Um, but if you need an excuse, you've got one now. Uh, but can I just pray? And Lord, we do thank you that you said that um, young men will get visions and old men will get dreams. And you'll send your spirit on all your people. And we are so open for that to happen. And uh, we ask you to teach us and guide us. We have, Father, we know we haven't learned all that we can learn from you about the ministry of your spirit. And we pray, uh, Lord Jesus, teach us, show us that all you promise might be fulfilled in us. And Lord, our heart's desire is that what is here might roar into flame as we take the good news of Jesus and the life of your spirit to other places. Lord, let many torches go out, we pray. Amen. 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 And the other thing new that's been happening to me, and that's just when we're towards the end of communion, I would love to pray for anybody that would like uh, a touch of healing. Uh, that's my step of obedience, and, and all I'd be asking is that the Lord Jesus might touch you and bring you health. Um, so those of you would want to join in praying for other people for healing, so please um, come and join me. Anyway, are you ready? We've got a message now. Uh, ch- hasn't church changed in the last 50 or so years? Have you noticed that if you've been around that long? It's ch- it certainly has, yes. I think there's been a desire to make church more relevant, more accessible, more real. Um, churches like this were started with that sort of desire or it was transformed at some stage in its history and um, we've restored worship restored our understanding of the work of the spirit there's new vitality and mission but there's one area that I still think has a lot of room to grow and to be restored and that is in what we usually call the Lord's celebrating the Lord's Supper or Communion so, you know, in Acts, Acts 2, 42, it talks about devoting yourself to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the prayers and to the breaking of bread. And I always say three out of four is not bad. I think the modern church and churches like ours restored lots of the apostles' teaching and newness of fellowship. So I grew up in a Baptist church. That's where I became a Christian. Fellowship was that hall at the back of the building, you know, outside the church as a secondary building where you had tea and biscuits after the meeting and that was the fellowship hall and fellowship was having tea and biscuits with people and we got a much deeper understanding of fellowship and in those days we called everybody Mr and Mrs. Um, uh, you know you could never call people by their Christian names and I think we've broken that down we're brothers and sisters so and I've learned loads about prayer I remember the first New Frontiers prayer meeting I went to it scared me um because these people seem to be, I don't know if it happens here, but they seem to be shouting at God a lot in roarous prayer. And the thing that, it was not only the volume, 
but the level of faith and expectation was huge. So I think we've, in lots of areas, churches have changed, but I think in Breaking of Bread, we've still got lots more to experience and understand because I think very often we're more sure what it isn't than what it is. We're more sure what we shouldn't do and, and rather than what it should be. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 11 and a passage that is often quoted when we break bread and drink wine together. Um, and in these verses, Paul poses a surprising question. And the question is this, when is the Lord's Supper not the Lord's Supper? When is the Lord's Supper not the Lord's Supper? When is it valid and acceptable and useful? And when does it make a mockery of Christ's death? When is breaking bread and drinking wine together dangerous and unacceptable? So as I read the passage, maybe you let that question roll in your mind. When is the Lord's Supper not the Lord's Supper? 1 Corinthians 11 verse 17 In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as As you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus On the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats, and dr- eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home. So that when you meet together it might not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. Hmm. When is the Lord's Supper not the Lord's Supper? If you like church history, you will know that through the centuries, different groups of Christians have criticized other groups of Christians. 
about how they do the Lord's Supper. So my favourite story in church history about this is Martin Luther, the great reformer. Um, In the 1500s, different reformers got together because they were fighting amongst themselves about what this meal means and how you should do it. And they're sitting round a table, a big, like, refectory table. And the story goes that Martin Luther gets so frustrated because he thinks the others are not taking this seriously enough that he writes on the table. Now, the, the scholars vary on what they, how they think that happens. Either he wrote in chalk or he took a sharp knife out and scratched it on the table um, probably even more likely for Martin Luther, it was the froth of the spilt beer that he wrote in. But he wrote, Hoces meum, no, corpus meum, in Latin, this is my body. And for Martin Luther, he was saying something very important about the bread and the wine. This is my body. He wrote on the table. People have suggested the missing ingredient or the, mis- you know, the problem is it's not the right people who are doing, presiding at the table, as they would call it. You know, you've got to be a bishop or a priest. Someone's got to be ordained to like, lead that part of the meeting. Or it's not the right words. And you've got to have the right words in the right order, so you have to have a book that you read the same words every time. Or it's not the right understanding. So there's disagreements about how Jesus is present when we do this. And what does happen, if anything, to the bread and the wine? Well, it's not the right procedures. So some services you go to have a very set order. And there might be bells and there might be different movements you do at different times. And if you don't get that right, you're not quite doing it properly. Or it's not that right bread. I have to say, some people would think this is not the right bread. Because there's been yeast in that bread, and Jesus didn't use leavened bread. He used unleavened bread. And it might be not the right wine, because often it isn't wine. Grape juice, or the worst, is fairly undilute Ribena, in my experience. And when you have that, and you have, like we have today, the little cups, you have a symbol of a symbol in a thimble. Or it might be not the right name. You know, is it the Lord's Supper or Communion or the Eucharist or Mass or Breaking of Bread? They're all different names that different Christian groups give. And churches have split over this. There have been serious disagreements over this. People even fought over this physically. But that's none of these things, although they might be important and they're to be resolved and talked through, that's not what Paul's talking about. That's not the missing ingredient that Paul talks about. You can have all the right words, you can have all the right understanding in your head and it not be, for him, the Lord's Supper. So let's have a look at this passage. You've got two shocking things that Paul says. Verse 17. For your meetings do more harm than good. That meeting for Christian worship can do more harm than good. Have you ever been in meetings like that? You come away and thought, that wasn't a waste of time. That was a wrong use of time. This is damage. does more harm than good. That's shocking. Or verse 20 and 21. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper. 
Even though they've had bread and wine, he's not criticizing any of the things we've talked about. But it's not the Lord's Supper. For each of you eat, each goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. And one remains hungry, another gets drunk. And at that point you think, wait a minute, there's something happening here that doesn't happen with us. Because I can't imagine if you remembered that we were breaking bread this morning, that you woke up and if you were a bit late and you weren't having, didn't have time for breakfast, you didn't go, it's okay because we're going to eat, because we're going to have breaking of bread. But one of the things talking about hungry, and no one thought, well, you'd have to be highly sensitive, even if this is alcohol that we're going to drink, you'd have to be highly sensitive to alcohol if that amount is going to make you drunk. What's happening here in Corinth? Because there's something different happening here than the way we do it. The background story, as far as we can work it out, and, and, and what makes most sense is, one, they met in homes, they didn't have a building. They would meet, Christians would meet, in the largest home they could find. So most Christians in those days were relatively poor, especially in Corinth, but there would be some rich folk more wealthy folk, and they would have a large house. And large houses were built around a courtyard, and that was part of like the grounds. And so this is what would happen in those days in normal society. You would use the courtyard as like an open-air dining room and and meeting hall. But you would also have an indoor dining room. And what would happen is if you had rich people with status if you had them you were to meet them if they visited you you would take them into the dining room and you would eat there but for ordinary people like me you might let me into the courtyard that's how it would go and it seems what happened in Corinth is that when the church met at this house on occasion at least the owner of the house would invite his rich, high-status friends early and they would have a meal in the dining room. And so they would eat first and some of them might get a bit drunk there. And then more ordinary folks, and some of them would be slaves, would get there later in the day and they would bring their own food and some of them wouldn't have enough food to bring and they would be in the courtyard and they would be hungry. So some are drunk and some are hungry. And then the, who was ever leading it, and probably it was the host of the house, would come and say, now we're going to break bread, we're going to remember the Lord, and we're going to do the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, you might say the words, and you might have bread and wine, but if that's what's going on, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Imagine uh, you have meeting homes, I'm sure, small groups, whatever you call them. Have you found... Dan and I have given up giving our groups names because they keep changing. Community groups, discipleship groups, small groups, commitment groups. We, call, we talk about groups. That's all we talk about. But I guess you have groups. You're meeting homes at times. So imagine you go to your next group meeting and you get there and you find that in the dining room of this house, some of the group have already turned up and they've obviously been there an hour or two because they're very merry in the other room. And um, you and a few others turn up late and you're shown into the lounge. And the host sort of is going between the two. And there's laughter and joking in the other room. And some of your folk have just come from work and they haven't had a chance to eat, so they're a bit hungry. And then uh, 
the host comes and says, and stands in the doorway between the lounge and the dining room, says, and now we're going to take the Lord's Supper, okay? And they pass around bread and wine. It's that sort of scenario that's happening here. Paul said there's something wrong with that sort of scenario, of making that sort of distinction. When I was a Baptist minister in London, we had a, a Victorian chapel, which had a balcony around it. And looking through the records, the church, church uh, the, the records of the church, you found out who sat in the balcony. And the people who sat in the balcony were the servants of the people that sat on the ground floor. And they sat in the balcony because when they had communion in that church, that was like a second meeting after the main meeting. And they would send the servants home to prepare dinner while the rich people had bread and wine. It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. What would Paul write to churches where and situations where black and white people have to go through different doors or have to meet in separate buildings? There are two things going on in communion. One is an expression of our relationship to him and what he done, has done for us. But, but one of the things he's done for us is he's made us one. Across rich and poor, black and white, male and female, slave and free, whatever distinctions are out there, we are brothers and sisters in here. And it's not just enough to say that, but it's the way we do things to express that and reaffirm that truth. Provokes a question though, isn't it? How could these people not see this? And how could it be possible that something like that could happen to us? Here's my diagnosis. What is socially acceptable can blind us to what is spiritually unacceptable. What our culture tells us is okay can blind us to what God says is not okay. So I think in the period of apartheid, there were Christian folk who loved Jesus but didn't see how wrong apartheid was because their culture told them it was okay. And so... We need, people need, when you get blindness like that, to be provoked out of it. And that's what Paul does here. Paul knows this dynamic. He knows that if you're in the in crowd, it's very difficult to notice what it feels to be like to be in the out crowd. And there's a, always, in any group, an in crowd and an out crowd. And this is how you can tell if you're in the in crowd in this church. You don't think there's one. Okay, And if you're in the out crowd, you know it. So when I first started going to church, I came from a working class background. And church was a bit strange. And no one was unkind to me, but it did, I knew I was a bit on the outside because I didn't know how it worked. And I kept putting my foot in it. If you're in the out crowd, you always know you're in the out crowd because it doesn't quite work for you. And it's not quite so obvious. You're on someone's turf. So as I say, Paul knows this dynamic and he wants to burst the bubble of their blindness. So 
So he says to them in verse 22, Don't you have homes to eat in or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Now, you can't imagine that anyone in Corinth got up one Sunday morning and said, let's go to church and humiliate a few people. No one thinks like that. However bad we are, we never think like that. But just because we don't think like that doesn't mean it's not a possibility for us. That's what it happened here. So here's the question for us this morning. How do we show respect to people and make them feel included and accepted? Do we reflect the attitude of Jesus to them? Do we act according to the truth of who they are in Jesus? Or do we just reflect what society says about them or our subculture? This is especially significant if you're in leadership or you're in the in crowd. When is the Lord's Supper not the Lord's Supper? When those who Jesus welcomes and values are made to feel second class. When is the Lord's Supper not the Lord's Supper? When we give the impression to people that God has his favourites and they're not one of them. My daughter's bought me a t-shirt once. It said in big letters, God loves you. And then in small letters underneath, but I'm his favourite. And a couple of times I thought of putting it on and not going on Sunday with it, but you know, taking it into the office. But even then, it just was, it felt excruciatingly painful to put it on. Because you don't have to have, had the, have the T-shirt to have done that and said that to people without words. So that was their problem at Corinth. What does he say is the answer? Well, I want to say it's a Jesus-centered solution. (laughs) Paul only gives one instruction in this passage. Verse 34, if anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, which is the sort of, I call it the sort of 6.30, 7 o'clock dilemma. Do you know this? When people invite you out to a meal, to have it at their house, it's never the same time as you have it at your home. It's usually a bit later than you have at home. So by the time it's like, we usually eat about seven. If we go out to eat with somebody, it's usually about eight. So at seven o'clock, I'm ravenously hungry. Actually, I'm hungry about half six. So at seven o'clock, you have this dilemma, don't you? Do I not eat anything? And then when I get there, I might eat, you know, if there's nibbles around, I might eat all of them far too quickly and get, you know, that look that tells you not to do that. Or do you wait, um, uh, do you eat something, and then you get there and you think, oh, I ate a bit too much, and now I've got to eat all this food. Oh, What do you do? Paul's saying, if when you're thinking of coming to church, and they used to not only break bread and drink wine like we did, they would have a meal together. It was called the agape meal. He said, if if you know you're, you're really hungry now and you're going to start eating before everybody else turns up, then eat something at home just to allay your hunger so that no one feels left out, no one feels second class because they turned up late and that they weren't important enough for you to wait for them. That's what he was saying. So eat at home. That's the only instruction. 
But Paul knows you could change all the details about how you do communion. You could change the organization, the seating plan, the exact words you say. You could change the liturgy and not suck out the poison. So he wants to go deeper. He wants to help the Corinthians with their heart attitude. And you know, if you want heart surgery, you need to look at Jesus. Because as you know him, he changes your heart. So he says it's all about Jesus. He took bread. He gave thanks. He broke it. He said that we should remember him. We think about his broken body, his blood shed, his sacrificial death. The mill proclaims him. He is going to return. It's all about him. And that's true of every church meeting that we have, but especially when we break bread and drink wine. And I think he's saying to hosts of the church, you know, you might on other occasions say, well, it's my house and I invite into my dining room how I want to, and I don't think there's any problem with that. We do that. Everyone does that. So, but when it's a meeting of the church, it might be your front room and it might be your food, but it's not really. It's his. It's his meeting. It's his home. And it should be done the way he wants it done. This is my body. This is my meeting. This is where I want to be at home. You do it my way. Jesus gave up the rights and privileges that he might serve us. And I think the Lord Jesus is outraged when church accumulates wealth and power and doesn't use it for the least of his brothers, for the weakest and the poorest. We should remember that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he also washed the disciples' feet. He took the last place. He wanted to honor and serve others. And if we truly focus on Jesus, he will re- Spirit will release in us an attitude that frees us from our sense of status and importance that we might serve others and honor them, especially those that feel less worthy. Who are those that need to be especially honored? Well, it's those who feel left out, the folk who feel like they're not in the in crowd. Let me give a suggestion for some. This is how it affects in some churches. The frail and the elderly can feel left out. The immigrant, the poor, the the depressed, those with a sense of failure, the hurting, the chronically sick, those with special needs. And those are the people in the church should feel most honoured, that they are the treasures, they are precious. For those who feel they have the least to offer and are the least acceptable amongst God's people, they are the most loved and the most valued. And then unless we think like this, then we're making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. Paul says in verse 29, Paul writes without eating, uh, writes without, about eating without recognizing the body. 
That means without realizing the value of the people around you. Just take a moment, look across the room. You're recognizing the body. Verse 27 says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Do you, in your imagination, ever relive Bible stories? You know, you're like you sit in the crowd, like on the Sermon on the Mount, or you're sitting in the boat and Jesus invites you to get out of the boat. Do you reimagine that? Have you ever imagined being at the foot of the cross when Jesus died and seeing his body layered, lowered from the cross by rough Roman soldiers? How would you have treated that body? That body battered beyond almost human recognition. Wouldn't you have tenderly wiped his face and straightened out the broken limbs and with such tenderness carried the body and placed it in the tomb? I know you would. If we'd been there, we would have done that. We would want to have done that. But we can't go in a time machine. We can't go back. But there are parts of Jesus' body that are broken and bruised and hurting. Here, amongst us, even today. So today we can do it, can't we? How we treat one another reflects how we would have treated his body. He calls us to be tender and caring. Paul doesn't give them a list of do's and don'ts. He gives them a vision of what Jesus has done. Let's just think for a moment. Just close your eyes. This is not a word of rebuke, although it was to them. It's a word of encouragement to deepen the love that you have already for one another. And to check your hearts to see if the Lord is directing you to expand the scope of your love. Even now, he might be reminding you or bringing to your attention people that you realize now feel a bit on the outside and a bit left out. People here that are hurting or feel they don't have anything to offer so they don't feel worthy. And he would whisper to you, go and wash their feet like I wash the disciples' feet. Today and during the week, express the tender love that I have for them. I want them to know how much I love them through you. If 
For how we treat this body is a reflection of how we would have treated that body that was pierced for us and given for us. Lord Holy Spirit, you have touched our hearts. Please show us how we can deepen and enrich and enfold into your love everybody that's here and everybody that comes in. That no one feels second class. No one feels unworthy. No one feels like they don't belong. Because we are your people. And we do love you. Amen. Now there's more to be said from this passage. And maybe another time I'll do that. But I think that's what we needed to think about today. Let me just say again. This is not a word of rebuke to you. Although it was to them. It is a word of encouragement. And we're going to in a moment move into breaking bread and drinking wine and I'm just going to invite the band if they're willing to come back Andrew says you're very flexible so, I'm, so it's his fault and not mine so if our worship leader can whisper in my ear if they've got a song in their head that might be appropriate because I think it might be good to sing something and then I will introduce the bread and wine um, and, uh, and then we can move into that and there will be, we're going to, just to tell you how we're going to do it, like I think you've done sometimes in the past, we're going to take the bread and wine at the tables. No one is organized to serve there, so if you get there first, then you can break the bread and hand it out. Um, but these moments will be a moment when you can express and put into practice just as like a little token of what God might have said to you. Um, so that you might pray for each other, or you just might want to... I'm a hugger, so I might, you know, I might feel prompted to hug someone. You might be a handshaker, so you can do a handshake. But some way of expressing your love and value, and of course you need to be especially alert to anyone who feels on the edge today. And maybe there's someone you think, oh, I've never really done that to them, but I want them to, them to know that I love them. So when we get to bread and wine, when you've eaten the, the bread and the wine, wine it might be a time then just to to mingle if that makes sense and uh, to express something of the love of god through us to each other so i'm gonna get just go and check and see if they've got a song have we got got something so i'll I'll get out of the way in this time just allow god to speak to you because i'm sure he can bring application to you Um, and when we sung this i will come back and lead the next part of the meeting